Napmo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Napmo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Bhutang tamang sankang namasami Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world, Tanajan has uh, asked me, Tanajan has asked me to share some, some reflections with you all on the uh, second online retreat that he has uh, kindly offered to share with all of us. You can see a, a few familiar faces on the screen. Hi Joyce, hi JC, hi Xunxiang, hi Leanne, <laughs> hi Diana. The theme that uh, Tanajan requested me to talk on is uh, so. Firstly, I say uh, it's my preference when I come to what Mapchan is to listen to the Dhamma of my teacher. I consider myself Tanajan Anand's disciple, and I enjoy listening to him. And uh, but to share the duties. I give others the opportunity to teach. Tanajan is asking abbots of his branch monasteries to give some uh, sharings. He asked me in particular to talk about how we train in sitting for longer sessions. He said, for example, teach them how to sit for four hours straight. The reason uh, Tanajan asked me to talk about this, I think, is because I do have uh, some experience of uh, trying to sit many hours in a day. I uh, have a bit of a devotional character and have made many trips to Bodh Gaya. And I noticed when I was in Bodh Gaya, the Tibetan monks and nuns doing their full-length prostrations, uh, many of them literally it seemed all day, expressing their gratitude and uh, devotion, respect. And so I also, in one of my trips in Bogaya, tried out the full-length Tibetan prostrations, worked up from 50 to 100, 200, 300, 400, 500. And uh, there was one period many years ago when I was uh, doing that as one of my practices there. I would alternate circumambulations, full-length bowing prostrations, chanting and sitting. But I noticed that in doing the full-length prostrations, that when I came to sit, there was pain in the body, pain in the shoulders. Uh, it wasn't a practice that was very conducive to... Uh, it seemed like one should either bow a lot or sit a lot. It didn't seem like bowing a lot and sitting a lot was very complimentary. And so I, and also I noticed that in doing the circumambulation in quite a busy place and the bowing in a busy place, it was a bit difficult to maintain a sense of uh, what we call indriya samara, sense restraint. And uh, normally living in a forest monastery with other monks, 
we are accustomed to being able to live in a very secluded and quiet and we can maintain a lot of composure of the senses. And so I challenged myself a little bit and I said, okay, since there's a lot of pain involved in bowing anyway, and since these Tibetan practitioners do it many hours a day, and since I'm from the meditation tradition, the Thai forest meditation tradition, why don't I be willing to sit with more pain and sit for longer? And so then I began uh, a practice of sitting for six hours in one day at Bogaya. And I went back on subsequent trips when uh, my students were willing to support me to go back. I didn't want to become in indebted to them, I felt that I should be putting forth a sincere effort so that I made some progress in my spiritual practice and also so that they got good merit from my practice. So I made a, a vow to increase my efforts at formal sitting meditation under the Bodhi tree by one hour every time I went back. And uh, it's not really practical to do more than 10 or 11 hours, so I did stop at uh, 10, 11 hours. But that sounds very daunting, doesn't it? Imagine sitting 10 hours a day for 40 days. It's actually not so difficult to do for one day. Uh, the, the difficult part is when you have to do it day after day after day. The question probably arises is, well, why do it? Why sit with more pain? And why sit for longer sessions? Very good question. Tanajananan this morning, in, in his reflection this morning, was saying, lay people should sit for at least one hour a day, two half hour sessions. If they can do two hours a day, that's good. That's very good. And so I would agree with that. That's a good foundation. But when we come to study the suttas and we come to study the teachings of the great forest masters, then we will hear about uh, different types of samadhi, different levels of samadhi and different levels of insight and even different levels of stages of paths and fruits of realization. So this is the territory of uh, very sincere committed spiritual practitioner who, who's getting serious about liberating the mind from greed, hatred and delusion, uh, liberating the mind from samsara. So it's very important to go, I would suggest, in a slow and steady manner and gently increase. But I, Ajahnanan wanted me to offer some reflections about when Perhaps some people are ready to try for periods of time increasing, increasing their efforts. So why? Why increase one's efforts? A list that I think is very helpful to refer to is the five spiritual powers, the five bala, faith, energy, mindfulness, concentration and wisdom. Lord Buddha, after his enlightenment, under the Bodhi tree, 
in one of his weeks experiencing the bliss, the rapture of liberation, he himself was amazed with what he'd accomplished. So wonderful, so marvelous, so amazing was the experience of Nibbana. And he made statements such as, this is difficult to penetrate, difficult for beings to understand what he realized goes against the stream. And he was amazed and he was considering, how did I actually do it? How did I accomplish this, given that it is something difficult, very difficult to realize? And then he had the insight, these five spiritual powers, when cultivated, made much of, lead to the deathless and merge in the deathless. And uh, the thing I love about this list is that it's short, fairly easy to understand, but comprehensive. And that's a pretty amazing statement, isn't it? These five powers, when cultivated, lead to the deathless. What's the deathless? Deathless is a synonym for Nibbana. We have uh, various ways that, various words used to describe. We have the conditioned world, the world of conditions, Sankara. Lord Buddha described Nibbana as asankata, unconditioned. The thing about conditions is that they all arise and stay for some time and cease. The conditioned world is also referred to as the realm of death. So when Lord Buddha mentions the deathless, he's talking about having established the mind, purified the mind, established the mind in a state where death no longer occurs. There's no grasping at conditions which have the nature to arise and cease. The mind has been established in an unshakably peaceful, superior level of enlightenment where it cannot degenerate. So these five powers, when cultivated and when when uh, practiced in harmony, when they're all powerful. So this is a, I remember Ajahn Sumedho in his early years at Wat Nompapong, he also told me that he used to use this as something of a mantra. Sata, Wiriya, Sati, Samadhi, Banya. He would review and uh, because he had the, he also had the faith that if he could make all of these powerful, then he would have a powerful practice. And so the faith part is important because faith, if we're, going, if we're thinking about increasing our efforts in practice, we're going to need some resolve, we're going to need some energy. And faith is uh, very helpful. When we think about faith, it's important that we bring our faith inside as well. So we do our chanting, we have faith in Lord Buddha, the enlightened one, the awakened one, very important then to have faith in the Dhamma. The Dhamma is sometimes considered as the teachings. The teachings can also be considered as a path, a map. The Dhamma, another way to understand it is ultimate truth. Or conventional truth and ultimate truth. 
And as Dharma practitioners, we want to understand conventions so that we can work with them. And we want to get interested in those conventions, those conditions that lead to the unconditioned. So important then to understand that the Dhamma is also not self. And what I mean by that is it applies to everybody equally. It's natural law. So very important then that we understand we have the potential to realize ultimate truth and be liberated through clear seeing if our mindfulness, clear comprehension and wisdom concentration are strong enough. So we need sometimes to have a look. Do we believe it? Do you believe that you have everything you need to liberate the mind? One of the fetters that uh, obstructs stream entry is a doubt. So we have to have a look. Do you doubt your potential? Do you doubt your ability? If you do, it's good to start making some positive affirmations. It's good to challenge the doubts. Apply wisdom to them. Uh, it wasn't just, it's not just the Buddhas. Every few eons, a Buddha comes and gets enlightened and nobody else does. That's where we have the Sangha. And the Buddha had his foremost disciples and his great disciples. And then he had hundreds of thousands of Arahant disciples. And in his... Uh, the time that he was wandering around northern India, he also had hundreds of thousands of lay stream enterers, disciples. So, so, the point is, we do have what we need. We have a body and we have a mind. And the unenlightened state means that the mind is affected by ignorance. What is ignorance? Ignorance means not knowing, not seeing things according to their actual nature. Because of that, we have delusion. What's delusion? Delusion is misapprehension, seeing things incorrectly. Because we have misapprehension, we tend to grasp at the body and mind as being a self, I, mine, and others. Then we have greed and hatred. The root kilesas of greed, hatred, and delusion. When we consider this, ignorance, delusion, greed and hatred, the clinging, the clinging and the grasping that occur because of that, then we look at the other list, faith, energy, mindfulness, concentration, wisdom, we have the direct antidote. So what is mindfulness? I'm skipping from faith now to mindfulness, we'll go back to energy. Mindfulness is a quality of knowing, awareness, and we all have some, but our mindfulness tends to be, because it is affected by ignorance and then the greed and the hatred, the craving for, the craving not for, our mindfulness tends to be cloudy, fuzzy, challenged, not good mindfulness. And so then we have to get interested in, because I was just saying, Lord Buddha, in reviewing his enlightenment experience, after delighting in the bliss of liberation for a week in the proximity of the Bodhi tree, on another occasion, he also delighted in the bliss of liberation 
and was reviewing, again, with a mind of amazement or rapture, gratitude, how did this, how did I realize this? How did that, this get established? How did the mind get liberated? And he saw, very similarly to the five spiritual powers, he saw that these four foundations of mindfulness, when made much of, when cultivated, merge in the deathless, lead to the deathless and merge in the deathless. Again, very pithy, very simple and very poignant. We should pay attention. Sometimes we, we like to study more complex things. We want to get uh, fascinated with sophisticated concepts and uh, amazing uh, intellectual contemplations and considerations. But I think when Lord Buddha says, these four things lead to enlightenment, I think we should be paying attention. And when Lord Buddha says, these five qualities, when we cultivate them, lead to enlightenment, we want to have a good look at this. So if we have fuzzy, clouded, not very sharp mindfulness, if we understand that if we can generate good, clear mindfulness, that we will begin to experience insights and uh, glimpse liberation and finally be liberated through cultivating the four foundations of mindfulness, then, then we get interested. How do I make my mindfulness better, clearer, sharper, more consistent? And this is where we come to longer sessions of sitting. Sometimes it's a kind of counterintuitive or if you look at it in short term with a, a little bit of impatience. We all have kind of a modern people aren't very patient and we have a what do they call it? Quick gratification. We want fast gratification. So the idea of sitting for 10 hours a day, knowing that there's definitely going to be pain, but there might not be a liberating insight, this is uh, where it gets a bit tough. And this is where we have to have faith. And this is where the energy comes in. Energy has a very close, the second of the five spiritual powers, energy has a very close relationship to effort. We have to make an effort to bring about energy. And so, what, what do we make an effort at? We make an effort at establishing the mindfulness. So when we come to do a session of meditation, we set the intention, what is my meditation object? Oftentimes it's the breath. Sometimes it might be loving-kindness, sometimes it's body contemplation, contemplation of death or impermanence, but we, we make it clear. For this session, what am I going to do? For myself, I often start with 10 minutes of metta and then go to the breath. When the mind gets peaceful, goes to a fairly peaceful state, if it comes out of that state, then I might do some contemplation of body parts or elements, but we have some kind of a sense when we come to sit what we're actually going to do. This is important because uh, mind is the forerunner. We set our intention and we make it clear. But one thing that it's not a very intellectually seductive idea, but it's the truth, in my experience, that when one sits with more pain in the body and in the mind and 
keeps persisting. If one keeps making an effort to try to be aware of the breath, even though there's shoulder pain, try to be aware of the breath, even though there's knee pain. You feel like you can't stand it anymore, so then you pick up a skillful contemplation such as metta. In the, that's been enormously helpful to myself in the periods when I've been doing intensive practice. One has to have a, on one level you want to be a spiritual warrior and you want to be enlightened. And there you are sitting and you have a lot of suffering. And uh, what do you do with that? You have to be humble and admit that there's a conventional being that has a lot of suffering. And then the appropriate response to a conventional being that has a lot of suffering is to have loving-kindness. So in the, when we try to have loving-kindness, you know, we're trying to get enlightened, we want to be an arahant, we want to be a bodhisattva, we want to be a Buddha, whatever your aspiration is, you want to have loving-kindness for all beings, but there you are sitting and, and you just don't want to do it anymore. What do you do with that? you humbly acknowledge that here's a conventional being that has a lot of suffering and then you very, very sincerely wish yourself well because we have to remember that among all sentient beings we are one of them and we have to remember that loving kindness when we radiate it outwards, it has to start here. So suppose, suppose you're going to sit for two and a half hours, let's make it a bit more manageable. So that's what I would do, by the way. The idea of sitting for 10 hours, how on earth do you sit for 10 hours? Basically, it's four two-and-a-half-hour sessions. So then it suddenly becomes more manageable. Okay, four two-and-a-half-hour sessions. There's another practice, the sitter's practice, which is very advanced. I'm, I haven't done it, I'm not doing it. The sitter's practice is like when a, when a, a practitioner who is developed enough to undertake such a practice sits in one posture and makes the vow not to move at all, maybe for 10 hours or 12 hours. People who have sharp spiritual faculties, people who have uh, spiritual powers already considerably developed, this is a good practice for these people because they know how to work with the pain, they know how to coming in and out of uh, concentrated states. They know how to contemplate phenomenon. But for people who are in, in that area of practice where we are stretching and our abilities patiently but consistently and deepening, deepening our efforts, then we have to think in terms of making more of an effort and having clear container. So for myself, I would sit in the half lotus position for 45 minutes with the right leg on top of the left leg and I have a little watch in front of me and I give myself permission, I'm allowed to wriggle a little bit and change my sitting posture, not standing up, but after 45 minutes I'm allowed to swap the legs. So take down the left leg, take down the right leg, pull up the left leg, adjust the pillow under the, the buttocks and start again. The second time will go for an hour and then give myself permission to move after an hour, move one leg from the top around to the side. Uh, many of you may have noticed that Thai bhikkhus often sit this way with one leg in front and one leg sideways. And uh, so giving oneself a little bit of wriggle room. You've got two and a half hours, you're going to sit in one position for 45 minutes. You're going to wriggle a little bit, make a bit of an adjustment, and then you're going to sit for an hour. And so 
Oftentimes what people do is they get to that point where they've sat 40 minutes, 45 minutes, there's pain in the body and there's that sense of I've done my meditation. Get up. And what, in my experience, is if one opens the eyes, moves gently, tries to, tries to sustain the level of peacefulness that is present, don't let it dissipate, mindfully, slowly, carefully, change your position a little bit and sit again, in that second hour after 45 minutes, there is more peacefulness, there is sharper mindfulness. So there's a clear correlation to the consistency of the effort and not allowing the mind to gather to some degree and then dissipate completely again. And, and so in a, in a session of two and a half hours, you never know, it might be the last half an hour that's very peaceful, it might be the very first half hour that's very peaceful, it might be somewhere in the middle. But in my experience, I can be fairly confident that if I do sit for two and a half hours, at some point the mind will become quite peaceful. Simply because one is making a sincere and diligent effort. And so one has to, one sets the intention, maybe you do some metta, then you set the intention to do breath meditation. And normally what happens is there's going to be some physical pain that manifests somewhere. And oftentimes there's going to be some pain in the mind as well. So. When I say physical pain, it's, uh, this is a, an interesting contemplation for, for us. You know, there's, there's actually no such thing as physical pain. What, what it's described as in the suttas is feelings that arise due to body-based contact. So all feelings are arising in consciousness. No, no feelings are arising in the four elements. Sometimes we describe them as pain in the body. And uh, we can uh, separate a knee pain, for example, from the pain of a heartache or a big disappointment, which is more of a clearly a mental phenomena in the heart area. So, But when we set the intention to sit for longer, it's very helpful if we lift our face. We recollect the Buddha's enlightenment. We recollect his heroic striving through samsara where he could have been liberated literally millions of lifetimes before and delayed his liberation, made the vow to accumulate qualities and merits so that he could help as many people as possible. The phrase which is used is to cause a multitude to cross over. So we consider that, we consider that remarkable effort and then and uh, we don't do it to feel guilty Oh my God, the Buddha put so much effort into becoming a Buddha to help me and look at me, I'm so pathetic. He shouldn't have bothered. We have to have a look. How, do, how is our self-talk? How do we talk to ourselves? It's like, no, Lord Buddha, in rec recognizing the potential of beings, saw that they were worth helping and put all of this effort into establishing a dispensation, 84,000 Dharma verses, lineages of enlightened disciples that would last for millennia and he had us in mind he wanted us he wanted to give us everything we needed in terms of instructions what what we need to cultivate how we should consider and contemplate so we have faith in the buddha and we have gratitude and love loving respect and gratitude for the buddha that's very helpful and then we recollect that we have the same potential 
So we lift our face, we lift our gratitude, and then we knuckle down at uh, making efforts that will increase our quality of peacefulness. So sometimes when you're trying to be aware of the breath and some knee pain, for example, comes up, it's, uh, if you look more closely at the knee pain, some aversion develops. So this is this the latent qualities here. When we come to sit, we want peaceful experiences, right? We want the rapture, we want the tranquility, we want the jhana samadhi. So okay, there's some craving there, some aspiration. We come and we sit, some pain arises. What happens? Irritation and aversion. And if we apply the mindfulness to knowing it, notice, you know, have to challenge yourself a bit. Where is the pain? My knee hurts. Where's the me? Sometimes we go through the body. Is the me in the hair? Is it in the teeth? Is it in the eyes? Can you find the eye? No. We challenge it a bit. Apply wisdom. Reflect wisely. Is it a solid, unchanging feeling? Because that's what it feels like. Oh my God, I, I have to run away from this. I have to stop. I can't bear with this. You have a closer look and you'll notice there's a lot of flux and a lot of change and a lot of movement in that. And in the simple act of staying with it, bearing with it, investigating it, not moving from it, these qualities of mindfulness and clear comprehension get sharper. And if you, if you get irritation and aversion arising in the mind, then you apply the metta, may I be well, may I be happy, may I be well, may I be happy, here I am a conventional being who's suffering, may I be well, may I be happy. And you do that until the aversion goes away. This is sometimes described as replacement by opposites when there's a unwholesome akusala dhamma in the mind, we generate and establish a kusala one. And simply, sometimes we think, okay, I'm just going to bear with this pain. And we get irritated, and the mindfulness might not get much better, and the irritation doesn't seem to go away, get up from the sit, and the mind isn't in a good space. So we have to experiment. What's it like to just very, very sincerely spread loving kindness to oneself? And I think this is a, another area where people really could benefit from making more effort I think we do the metta, may I be well, may I be happy. It's kind of wishy-washy. It's not very committed. We want insight, we want liberation, we want nibbana. And uh, we don't want to, we want liberation from this self-view. So we don't want to indulge it too much. And uh, the thing is, for metta practice to actually work, you have to actually mean it. If you want metta to be established as a form of samadhi, if you, re if you really, really want the heart of loving-kindness to be deeply established in the heart, you need to mean it. So when you're sitting there and you're miserable and you're suffering, it's like, okay, may I be well, may I be happy, mean it. May I, may I really be well, may I truly be happy, mean it, mean it, mean it, until the only thing that's left in the heart space is a feeling of unconditional love or loving acceptance, goodwill. Once that's established, okay, include more classes of beings, your teachers, your parents, your relatives, your friends, and then move on to all beings everywhere. There's a real, there's a real challenge to that, and it's quite enjoyable. When you can go from a half an hour experience of feeling irritated, aversion, contracted, hopeless, helpless, and half an hour later you can, go, you can be in a peaceful state where the radiating, radiating loving kindness quite sincerely in all directions. This is a very powerful practice and extremely helpful when one is increasing one's efforts and in the likelihood that you will experience more pain, both in the body and in the, in the heart. 
wisdom, satha, virya, sati, samadhi, panya. What is wisdom? It's a good thing to consider. As one of the five qualities that will establish the mind in liberation, the deathless, what is wisdom? And as the antidote to ignorance and delusion, not knowing and misapprehending, put most simply, wisdom is seeing things according to three characteristics, anichang, dukkang, anatta, impermanence, unsatisfactory, not self. The thing which causes us a lot of suffering is grasping at the body and mind as being a permanent self. The antidote is investigating its true nature and seeing nothing in there is permanent. All of these conditions are arising, staying for some time, ceasing, constantly in flux, impermanence. You see, grasping at the pleasant aversion to the unpleasant. You see the dukkha, something's pleasant, it ceases. And then, when one sees impermanence clearly, when one sees it's not a self, then anatta. So when we do the, when you do a longer session, you actually have a bigger period of time, a contained period of time to do some active contemplation. So when there is painful feelings coming up in the body or in the heart area, and there's that feeling of I don't want this, I don't want to put up with this, I can't stand this. That's when we get serious about, okay, where is this self which is complaining all the time? Where is he? Where is this guy that one moment's going to get enlightened, the next moment can't stand it, isn't going to do this one more second? Where is he? And then we, we go through the body parts. Is he in the hair? Is he in the teeth? We do this sincerely, sounds a bit silly, but we have to do it. We understand that the self grasping at things as being a self is what causes us to be miserable. We have to find this culprit, where is he? If we understand that seeing not self is something that's going to liberate us, okay, let's try and do that. So you go through the body parts, hair, no, no self, teeth, no, no self, nails. How do you do this? You just place whatever level of clarity, whatever level of presence of mind, mindfulness and clear comprehension that you have in that part of the body. So you place it on top of your head, sincerely being aware of that area and just asking, is the self there? Can't find it. Then you move to the fingertips. Okay, this self which can't stand it anymore, one minute wants to be the Buddha, next minute wants to give up. Where is he? Is he in the nails? Nope. Go deeper. Is he in the bones? No. Is it in the blood? Most human beings have about seven liters of blood. Is the self in the blood? Is it in the heart area where all these feelings are? You have a muscle contracting. When you place the awareness in that area, you can feel movement, you can feel a heartbeat. Is the self there? And what can happen if one has a certain amount of presence of mind and if one is doing this as a genuine, genuine spiritual practice is the feeling of self disappears for a period of time, it just falls away from the mind. When the 
when the self-view isn't being fed by the habitual grasping and when the spiritual powers are being applied to the experience mindfulness, some collectedness, wise contemplation the feeling of being a self can just fall away and then there might be pain in the knee and there might be pain in the body but there's no feeling of a self that can't stand it anymore and it's a very interesting experience I'm sure many of you who've done intensive meditation retreats have had that experience where in just not giving up in just keeping on persisting and investigating trying to be with the breath looking at the pain trying to let go of one's grasping for and not for a feeling of self disappears and the same body is there, the same feelings is there but there's no sense of a self which is craving for or craving not for for a period of time and then it comes back and this is a very rich field of investigation isn't that interesting? you begin to glimpse the fact that the self view is an habitual way of experiencing the body and the mind which is not the ultimate truth and you begin to have experiences of experiencing the body and mind without the self-view being present and if one continues with this practice consistently when one develops more faith in doing meditation retreats one develops more faith in doing longer sessions of practice and then what happens is even when the habitual grasping at things as being a self comes back there's a feeling of being a self there's much more porousness there's much more awareness around it there's a sense of spaciousness around it, there's an ability to reflect on it because there's now experience of seeing deeper and knowing that it's a bad habit that we have but not the ultimate truth something that we have to work with and this is important as well talking about attitude and we're not going to liberate the mind from self-view by hating the self you're not going to liberate the mind from greed, hatred and delusion by hating it so when the way many people like to come to visit abbots in Thailand during a period of suffering and they come and they almost on one level they're miserable and on another level they're proud of themselves because they look at the Ajahn and they say Ajahn I don't want to be born again anymore I'm so fed up with samsara and I'm like okay well <laughs> good but I need to explain something to you aversion to samsara and not wanting to be born again is not going to liberate you in fact, if you sit around all day thinking, I don't want to be born, I don't want to be born, I hate samsara, I hate samsara, you have absolutely no choice but to be born again. And oftentimes they're a bit surprised to hear this. Really, Ajahn? Yes, really. We chant the Dhamma Chaka Sutta. The causes of dukkha, the first double truth is dukkha. The cause of dukkha is the craving. Craving what? Craving for craving for being and craving not for so one of the reasons long sessions of sitting and intensive meditation retreats are helpful is because one isn't indulging the liking and not liking one just has to do it you just do it, just do it, just do it you want to do it, just do it you don't want to do it, you just do it you're not following these energies of wanting to and not wanting to and it grinds them down and uh, you end up with spiritual 
powers instead of habitual, reactive, and compulsive reactivity. So then I have to tell these people, okay, so you know what the monks have been telling you for a couple of decades, that you actually need to chant, you actually need to meditate, you actually need to listen to Dhamma, you actually need to be consistent, and then once you're consistent, you need to steadily increase your efforts. Then come back and talk to me about not being reborn again. So <laughs> anyway, all of you joining Tanajan and Nuns retreats, obviously much wiser than that. You're already applying your effort at uh, your consistent practice. I'm sure many of you have a chanting practice, a daily meditation practice. When I've done these intensive practices, I've worked up from periods of three weeks to 30 days and to six weeks. And uh, it is my experience, I'm just talking from my experience, for me to start getting higher levels of what I would consider to be genuine samadhi and deeper levels of insight that I would consider to be vipassana jnana is requires about eight hours a day for at least 10 days. I've been a bhikkhu for 25 years, and in my experience, that's the kind of effort that it requires to really start uh, getting in there and uh, uprooting some ignorance and delusion and establishing some genuine wisdom on a deeper level. Sometimes I don't want to tell people that because it seems you don't want people to think, oh, it's just too hard, I can't do it, I'm going to give up. But we're in the business of truthfulness and we understand that truth is what liberates us. So I remind you, just this morning, Tanajan said if lay people can do an hour a day as a foundation, it's good. Nobody's saying it's not good enough, it's good. Tanajan said, if you can do two hours a day, it's very good. I agree, that's very good. Lay people are often very busy. If we are serious, however, about... Tanajan also says, if, if one wants stream entry, if one wants to have an experience of the unconditioned to the point where the mind uproots fetters and couldn't possibly take an eighth birth, then we're talking about serious spiritual disciplines. And depending on where you are with your spiritual faculties, some of you may be ready to increase your efforts. And I recommend a gentle, slow and steady increasing with an absolute determination to not slip back. So once you get from your half an hour to one hour, don't go back to half an hour. Okay, you're sick. Okay, you're tired from traveling. One day, two days. Pick it up as soon as you can. And then when you, you've got your hour, then try to increase it to an hour, hour and a half. 45 minutes, 45 minutes. Once you're there, you increase to two hours. An hour in the morning, an hour at night. Once you get there, you increase to three sessions a day. Morning, afternoon, evening. It doesn't have to be sitting. It can be walking. It can be long sessions of chanting. But we want to be looking at consistent practice morning, afternoon and evening and then once we have that as a foundation we can we, I'm sure you start to see the true benefits of that you start to see that the mind is less reactive you start to see that there is more patience you start to see that there's more metta and then you get the inspiration to do more we want more of these wonderful results and then I think in terms of trying to do seven, eight, nine, ten hours a day, then oftentimes you will need the structure of a formal retreat to support you in that. 
One of the reasons I go to Bogaya is because for my character, it lifts my faith, spiritual power, so that the energy to apply that effort is simply there. Because I have such love for the Buddha, such gratitude, such respect for that holy site, when I'm in that holy site, I'm willing to do it, inspired to do it. This won't work for everybody. I have gone with students to Bogaya and they become irritated, grumpy, and developed boundless hatred for every single Indian. This also happens sometimes. <laughs> Doesn't work for everybody. And uh, I myself have a lot of Indian friends. <laughs> but uh, anyway, I won't out the person. I did challenge them on their uh, grasping at aversion to more than one billion people. <laughs> anyway, so one needs to find what is the context. Perhaps it's coming and staying with one of your teachers, coming and staying in a forest monastery that has a peaceful environment, going perhaps one of the holy sites is less busy and more, more less kind of crazy than Bogaya. Is there a place that you can go which will lift your faith so that you have more energy to put more effort into cultivating your mindfulness, concentration and wisdom? Of course, what you're doing now what is excellent. Tanajan Anand kindly agreed to teach a retreat and now you have a, some uh, rousing Dharma instruction friends, Kalyanamitta, to join with doing the chanting and the sitting, walking together. But for those of us who really want to glimpse the deathless and really want to begin chipping away at and uprooting these latent qualities of ignorance and delusion, we do need to make a good effort. And, uh, but as I said, slow and steady, gently increasing, being really important not to, give it, not to give any of it back. It's normal for Mara to come and trick you and tempt you and something might really upset you. You can get thrown off and get knocked off the rails for a while. Find a way to get back on and get back to the level you're at and get, get back to gently increasing, gently and consistently increasing because spits and spurts, stopping and starting, two steps forward, two steps backwards, doesn't work. Probably a lot of you have some experience of that now. So <clears throat> the strategy that actually does work is to do a little bit more and make that the habit. Do a little bit more and make that the habit. Do a little bit more and make that the habit. And sometimes we have to look, how are we using our time? What are we actually doing with our day? I think if uh, many people feel like, well, I can't do any more practice. I'm really busy. The two half an hour sessions is the only time I have. Then I think at least with the iPhone and the iPad, I think it will tell you how many hours you spent on your device each day. You can go in the settings and you can have your, your device tell you each day how long you spent on it. And I think that you will find that you do have several more hours, many of you. And uh, these things are addictive and a lot of time goes by without people realizing how much time went by. And so look at the areas of our life where we're wasting time or at least not using time most wisely and uh, can we cut, cut back on those activities. For some people just coming and sitting, you're not getting much rapture, you're not getting much tranquility, yet it gets a bit tedious. 
So we need to find ways to make it a bit more enjoyable. How can you make it a bit more enjoyable? And this is where the, the practices of chanting comes in. One, sometimes you don't feel like chanting, but if you do an energetic, lift the vault, chant louder, chant faster, do it for half an hour, experiment. How do you feel after the half an hour? Don't, don't judge your practice by how you feel at the, when you're coming to do it. Judge your practice by how you feel afterwards and really notice that. Yeah, I really didn't want to do that. And then when I finished, I felt uplifted. I felt light in body and mind. I've got more energy. The, the mind was more willing to be with the breathing more consistently, more easily. Yeah, one has to notice that. Sometimes you come and you sit and it's like taking a magnifying glass to the mind. There's still thoughts, there's still craving, there's still ir irritation, aversion. My meditation isn't working. But one's looking closer and closer at the phenomenon that are arising. Once you bow and you get up at the end of the session, have a look. Does your mind feel lighter? Does your mind feel brighter? Do you feel more relaxed? Do you feel more well-being? Usually we do. Have to pay attention to those moments. Okay, this is getting some results. Is there a sense of lightness of body and mind for a period after the meditation, half an hour, an hour? Oftentimes there is. We have to notice that. So find a way. Other people, it's a Dhamma talk. You listen to an uplifting Dhamma talk first. Okay, get inspired. You, teachers that you love, wisdom teachings that you love, listen to them. Okay, after that, do your meditation. Find a way to make it sustainable. One, the reason I go to Bogaya is because I love Bogaya. So when I go to Bogaya and I love it, I'm much more willing to practice with all of the things that I don't love in Bogaya. And there are a lot of those too. The, the bugs, the heat, the cold, the noise, the dirt. Uh, there's a, a lot to work with. And, uh, so I just wanted to talk a little bit about how one increases one's efforts for the sake of making our mindfulness clearer, sharper, more consistent. When we make our right mindfulness clearer, sharper, more consistent, what happens? It converges into samma samati, the other of the five, five spiritual powers. So the faith, the applying the effort, the applying the wise discerning, truth discerning awareness, keeping the body within, keeping the mind within the parameters of the body and present in the body, moment after moment after moment, right mindfulness. The focus of Lumpur Cha's teaching, how I understand them, is that consistent right mindfulness ripens as right collectedness. So you will experience the Kanika Samadhi. Five minutes of cool, peacefulness, not much thoughts. And then you may experience the Upajara Samadhi, touching on jhana, neighborhood concentration, where it's like 20 minutes of lighter, cooler, brighter, only a few wholesome thoughts. And, and one notices that in periods of retreat, you'll get more of those periods. And if one doesn't let up, what's well, going to occur? Momentary samadhi becomes upajara samadhi. Upajara samadhi is going to become apana samadhi, the access or jhana samadhi. But it's all samadhi. We try not to get into too much of a desire mind to get more and more. We sow the causes. We enjoy whatever amount of collectedness and peacefulness arises. And then we continue to sow the causes and the right mindfulness and that we have, and the right collectedness that we have, will build upon itself through the consistent effort, and it will become Mahasati, 
it will become jhana samadhi. And the little insights, experiences of letting go of the craving for and craving not for, the sense of self which is miserable or elated, beginning being able to have a more subtle sense of self which is just kind of content, uh, being able to let go of reactivity becomes vipassana jnana, an actual insight where one sees not self for a period of time, sense of self drops away, one sees an aspect of the body and the mind clearly as not I, not mine, just elements, just a body, just feelings. And the four foundations of mindfulness, see form as form, feelings as feelings, uh, mental mind states as mind states, dharmas as dharmas. So the, the in the beginning stages, we're working with the ordinary levels of faith, energy, mindfulness, concentration and wisdom. As we continue to practice, we will begin to have moments where the faith is really powerful, periods where the energy is really bright and clear, times when the present moment awareness is really sharp, really in the body, really cool, periods of some collectedness, sharp, penetrative, clearer seeing where the ignorance is less in the mind. And then when cultivated, when made much of, these five spiritual powers will lead you to the deathless. So I offer that for your reflection. And I just mentioned that uh, I plan to be going to Bogaya on the 5th of April, intending to spend about 28 days there. This time I'm going to be practicing with heat and sweat because it's likely to be somewhere between 36 and 42 degrees in the middle of the day. And I haven't been for two years, and uh, I miss it enough that I'm willing to go and work with that kind of pain, that kind of dukkha. And I, I set the resolution in my own heart. I said, well, even if it's just heat, and even if it's just miserable, if I have some karma that is going to ripen as a rebirth in hell, Maybe I'll purify it by willing to sit eight hours a day in Bogaya sweating. Maybe I won't have to go to hell. <laughs> anyway, one, when, one is, when one has an opportunity for, as someone who's an abbot, simply leaving the monastery sometimes can be very helpful. As soon as you sit on the plane, you're already experiencing some factors of jhana. <laughs> Contentment, rapture, tranquility. I don't have to be an abbot. Satu. And then, uh, you know, when people offer you tickets and pay for your accommodation, you feel that you have to make an effort. And that's helpful too. A little bit of conscience. I need to be diligent. And uh, other people are supporting me. But when one looks at... So in a situation where it's going to be from 25 degrees to 42 degrees in the daytime, what will I do? I would actually try to sit four or five hours in the morning from 5 to 10.30, you see. You have to work with the conditions as they are. Then it's okay to go and rest in the middle of the day in an air-conditioned room. Come back out at six, come back out at, no, it'll be three or four, and sit for another four hours. It'll be hot for the first few hours, and then it'll get cooler. But we do have to be willing to work with some Dukkha Vedana. And uh, when we do, we often experience uh, more rapture, tranquility, mental bliss and happiness as a result of our efforts. So I rejoice in your efforts of practice, and I'm joining in you, and uh, let's all continue striving. I hope you realize the deathless, 
as soon as possible with every supportive condition.